I think it's wonderful that uh, Philip read from our passage today. (laughs) Because we are going to be studying Luke chapter 1 and the story of Zechariah. I've got a handout here for you all. Um, You had no idea that I was going to be doing this and neither did Philip, so it was just kind of neat that he actually read Zechariah's prayer. But as Carl's passing out the, uh, the text for this morning. I thought I'd give you a quiz, a Christmas quiz, and see if you guys can answer these great questions. On December 24th, what was Adam's wife known as? Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve. <laughs> these are really important Bible trivia questions. So what do you call an opinion survey in Alaska? North Pole. She's the only one who knows the answers. What's going on here? <laughs> okay. When the salt and pepper say hi to each other, what are they passing on? Seasons greetings. Seasons greetings, exactly. Okay. What do you call a holy man with no change in his pocket? Saint Nicholas. Nicholas? Okay, come on. Okay, so what do Spanish sheep say when they wish each other Merry Christmas? Fleece, Navidad. <laughs> exactly, thank you very much for that. Okay, that's enough silliness for the day. The story of Zechariah. Now we have a lot of text here. It's a it's fascinating to me. I mean, Pastor Jim brought it up last week. You have the Gospel of John starts way back in the beginning of all time with the pre-existence of Christ. You have Mark basically ignoring the birth of Jesus entirely. It just starts right away into his ministry. Matthew starts with the birth of Jesus. Luke starts before. He doesn't start with genealogies. He doesn't start with any of that. He starts with the story, but not of Jesus. He starts with the story of Zechariah. Now, I have a book that's called Christmas from A to Z, and guess what the last entry is? (laughs) Zechariah. So it's kind of interesting that the very last word, the last letter, is where we start this whole story with an old man and an old woman. Very humble beginning. Let's just read the text and I'll comment as we go along. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, uh, have to stop there. This is Herod the Great, not Herod Agrippa, not Herod Philippi. This is their dad, the the, uh, insane guy. Also one of the greatest um, kings of the Palestinian era for his building abilities. I mean, he built the temple. He redid it. So they're worshiping in this redone temple because of Herod's vision. Um, He was alive from 37, he ruled from 37 BC to 4 AD. So we know pretty much that this is a historical record. There's no question that this actually is happening and when it happened. So he's the king of Judea. 
I won't go into Herod much more, more than that. We, we've actually covered him in detail years ago. And by the way, I actually taught this passage six and a half years ago when we were doing our chronological study of the Gospels. So you might have actually heard some of this because <laughs> he actually listened to all of it uh, in his various drivings in, the last, in this past year. Um, but there was a priest named Zechariah. Now, if you have a King James Bible, it's Zechariah with an S at the end. It's the same word. It doesn't matter. Just spelled differently. There are 31 men in the Bible with this name, including a prophet. So it creates some confusion because you might go, well, even in my searching for uh, information on here, I would go into various uh, websites or um, uh, sermon sites and I would say, sermons on Zechariah. And I'd get all of the prophets, Zechariah. And I was like, no. And then I'd go, well, Zechariah, Luke 1. And I would still come up with prophet things because of the name Zechariah. Anyway, it was rather frustrating, but I fi figured it out eventually. The name Zechariah, this is, I'm going to write the meaning of the name here for a reason. You'll see that in a minute. God has remembered. So his parents named him that. Hmm? His parents named him that. Yes, his parents named him God has remembered. Isn't that interesting? Um, it says he's of the division of Abijah. Now, some of you may have heard this before, but we, it's, it's instructive to the details of what's happening here. A division of Abijah, there are 24 different divisions of the priests or orders of the priests. This was established back in 1 Chronicles chapter 24 by King David. Now, this has been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, you know, centuries, literally. And what had happened is that back in 1 Chronicles 24, there were four sons of Aaron left. So you have... Aaron, then every priest came from the lineage of Aaron. And there were four of them left. Two of them were childless. So you only have two strands of the priesthood left. And it's starting to getting a little, you know, are we going to die out? Um, and yet these two had a lot of sons and a lot of grandsons. And so we figured, well, rather than giving just two families all the power, Let's split them up into 24. And they, <coughs> they then split the 24, and you have the list of all 24 of them in 1 Chronicles 24, and Abijah is number 8. That's where this comes from. Now, you might say, oh, okay, whatever. Well, think about what happened in 586 B.C. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in and basically carted off everyone of any substance or of any note to Babylon, including all the priests. I don't remember exactly how many years later they returned. Was it 70 years later, something like that? They all came back. But of the 24 orders, only four of them returned. We find that in Ezra chapter 2, verse 36 to 39. It lists the four 
orders that returned. The other 20 either were died off, didn't want to come back, whatever. All we have are four left. After Ezra has rebuilt the temple, Nehemiah has rebuilt the walls, this is what's left. It's kind of interesting, just one of my little scholastic exercises when I was a college student. Um, I was the TA, the teacher's assistant to Dr. Martin at Grand Canyon University, and he was being asked to write commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah. And he gave me a research question, like professors are wont to do when they don't want to look it up themselves. That a lot of books get written this way. They have the research assistants do all the legwork. And he basically said, how do we know who were the priests after the return from the exile? Who was keeping the genealogical logs? Because weren't they all burned when they burned Jerusalem? And you realize it's really important in the people of Israel that a priest could be of the house of Aaron. This is absolutely critical. No one else could be a priest. So, how, you know, you could walk in and just say, hi, I'm priest Carl. And they'd go, oh, really? Show us, show us your driver's license. Show us your proof. Uh, well, it got burned in a fire. Well, okay, come on in. Well, that's not how it worked. They actually worked at trying to reconstruct these genealogical records when they returned. And so each person, when they came on the return, that was part of the Ezra list in chapter 2, you see all these names divvied up. They were looking at the records and putting people in their appropriate houses. But because only four priestly houses came back, they redivided them into 24 again, regardless of which, um, I say, genetic link they were. In other words, the house of Abijah was just simply created from a pool of priests. The reason they wanted to do this will come uh, to light in a few verses, and we'll, I'll, I'll get to that, why they broke it up into 24. But for right now, just roll with it. There's 24 different ones. Zechariah is from the house of Abijah. <clears throat> he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. So what does that mean? She's also a Levite. She's also a Levite. She's also a Levite, that's right. They have to be. They have to be. A priest, they didn't have to marry someone from the priesthood, but it was preferable if they did. Now, the, the, the restriction is you, you had to marry a virgin. You had to, um, and, and you could not, not marry someone who was divorced. Uh, you, could, you could marry the widow of, a, of someone, uh, of another priest, but it wasn't an actual requirement of marrying a priest, but it actually made sense. Partly because that would mean that the daughter, the wife, understood his duties and wasn't going to be saying, you know, you really need to mow the lawn today. Don't preach. Well, okay, you know, and so they, I'm being facetious, but you get my point. Being a daughter of Aaron, and it's also interesting, her name was Elizabeth. Elizabeth means 
God is my oath. The wife of Aaron was named Elizabeth. So there's another connection to the priesthood, a very strong connection. And in other words, her family thought enough of her to name her after the wife of Aaron. Verse 6. This is kind of incredible when you think about it. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Righteous before God. In the sight of God, they are considered righteous. There's not too many other characters in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, that are named as being righteous. Can you name them? Or some of them? No. Job. Job, Noah, Abraham. Enoch. Enoch. These are kind of Hall of Fame people, right? Kind of important. What in the world is Zechariah being named this way? He's not in Hebrews chapter 11. He's not. After this story is done, we don't hear from him again. But he is seen as righteous, and she is seen as righteous before God, walking blamelessly. Now what makes this important is the next sentence. Because they had no child. Christopher Ashe said, those are the four saddest words in the entire Christmas story. She had no child. In that society, if you were childless, it was grounds for divorce. If you were childless or barren, it was both economically and socially disastrous. There was no heir. There was no one to take care of you in your old age. There was none of these elements that were so important to the family community. And it was assumed that the problem was always with the woman. The man, of course, could not be the source of this barrenness. It had to be the woman, which meant the woman had some sin in her life. Let's go back to um, all the good old friends of Job. Job chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Good old Eliphaz, the kind of friend you really want to have when you're time of distress, says to you, remember, who was, ever, who was innocent that ever perished? Or where, where were the upright ever cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity sow trouble and reap the same. In other words, if there's problem in your world, it's because you are a sinful person. Now we hear that frequently in the church today. It's actually preached in some pulpits. Since you're having economic problems, financial problems, confess your sin and then God will, will bless you. Mm. God's not a vending machine. Put enough prayers in it, and he'll give you a quarter back. That just doesn't work that way. But the fact that the way this is written, it mentions their righteousness and their blamelessness, and then identifies them as being without child. 
In other words, saying it had nothing to do with a lack of faithfulness. They were faithful, but they just didn't have a child. Now this obviously is a reminder to the readers who understand the Old Testament scriptures of Abraham and Sarah. So they have no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Okay, I have heard every possible, or read every possible theory of how old they were. We have to remember when they were. What was old in the year 3 BC? Or what, what, how, what was old? Now this, this is going to be a twist, so just follow my logic here. So many, many, many years ago, when I was running the Berean Christian stores in town, um, there was a fire in one of our locations. So it just happened to be while we were having a, um, um, oh, what do you call it, a birth celebration. A, for triple the, baby a triple baby shower at our house for three of our employees, all who had babies at the same time. So we're having this big party and the phone rings. And I answer the phone and it's Captain so-and-so with the Phoenix Fire Department. It says, we have a small fire at your establishment. Can you come down here? Of course, I then turned to the group and went, we have a fire at our 35th Avenue location, bye. And I just ran out. You know, Lisa had to hold everybody together and <laughs> like, whoa. Um, but I get there and on the way, I kept thinking, what does a fault small fire mean to a fireman? <laughs> does that mean the whole block hasn't burned down but just my store? I, I was going, oh my goodness, of course I drive up and you know, there were hoses running through the front door because they sawed off the bolt, the, uh, the front bolt, and, you know, it was a small fire in the back room. A blow dryer had shorted out and caught the wall, the, the dust, the uh, drywall on fire. And then it's, of course, set off the sprinkler systems in a bookstore. Oh. <laughs> Just, yeah, anyway, that's another story. <laughs> so I look at this, and it says they were both advanced in years. So how old were they? In our day and age, I hate to even ask the room, because <laughs> we have a variety of ages in this room, but is it 40? Are you advanced in years? 50, 60? I had one preacher claimed that they were 80. I think that's a little much of a reach. It's very possible that um, which makes this whole story even that more miraculous, but it's very possible that Elizabeth had already had her female change, menopause. It's very possible. And so this idea of her being childless, now there's no hope at all. But maybe not. Uh, you've, we, you know, even modern days, there are stories of families who are still having children where the woman is in her 40s, late 40s, sometimes even early 50s. That's really unusual. We all know how dangerous it is, both for the baby and for the mom. All these kinds of things come in here, but it says they're advanced in age. So in other words, it's really unlikely that she's going to give birth. That's the bottom line with this picture. Doesn't really matter how old she is, but just know that she's old enough that this is an issue. 
<clears throat> so, verse 8. Now, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of, priest, of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, I have to stop and explain that. Again, you may have heard some of this. You may not have. Remember, we had 24 divisions. Each division was given two non-consecutive weeks a year into where that division was in charge of the temple worship and the temple sacrifice. So you take 24 times 2 is 48. And how many weeks in a year? 52. The other four weeks of the year are Passover, Feast of the Tabernacles, and the Pentecost, one of the others, one of the other, one of the other festival times where all the priests would come. Now, what is the main duty of a priest when they're in the temple, when they're they are assigned to the temple? Any any idea? Just a random guess. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. They're animal slaughterers. In other words, their job is to cut the throats of animals all day. Kind of gross, but that's what they did. This, they, they would make sure, number one, they checked the animal, make sure it was pure, make sure it was appropriate. Then they would actually take that animal and be part of the sacrifice. It says that there's a guess that at one point when Passover was at its largest, there were 250,000 animals sacrificed during Passover. If there are 24 divisions and approximately 900 to 1,000 priests in each division, they still have a lot of work to do if they're going to be sacrificing 250,000 animals in one week. Just do the math someday. It's kind of extraordinary to think about it. You also have to try to imagine <laughs> how messy and noisy and cacophonous this worship was. I mean, all around, there's just animals, and then the, the blood and everything going on, just, it seems chaotic. And in our vision, it would be. But where is it quiet? Inside the temple. All of that's on the outside. Once, uh, twi twice a day, every day of the year, there would be a uh, presentation of the incense. Now, I have a, a chart on your first page there. This is not the best map of the tabernacle, but it was the one I could find the quickest. And in retrospect, I wish I had spent another 25 to 30 minutes and found you a better one. For one thing, it's facing the wrong way, east and west. Okay, for one thing you have to flip it. Just make a mirror image. So whoever drew this didn't know their, their Bible. Just turn paper upside down. Sure, fine. <laughs> then you, if you want to read it that way, that's just great. <laughs> um, they also flipped the, uh, the lampstand and the table of showbread. They're supposed to be on the opposite side of the room. So again, whoever was doing this wasn't really paying attention, but fine, that doesn't matter. 
My point was trying to show you where the, the altar of incense was. It's in the inner sanctum. Not the Holy of Holies, which is all the way over where the Ark of the Covenant would, would be. And the Ark, where in the Holy of Holies, the, only the high priest could go once a year on the Day of Atonement. But in that middle room, every day, a priest would go in and present the uh, sacrifice at the altar of incense. This was an incredibly high honor to be chosen to do this. So much so, as it says, verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot. Remember, there's approximately 900 to 1,000 in their division. And one of them was picked for the week. One of them. Which meant you could work your entire life as a priest of Israel and never have this honor. So he's picked. And once you're picked and do the duty, you can never do it again. So there's no repeat. No one can win the lottery twice. <coughs> so Zechariah is old in years. He is advanced in years. He has been a faithful, righteous, blameless servant of God. In some small town somewhere, we're not quite sure where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. The guess is it's Bethel, which is close by, within a few miles. Bethel was where Lazarus was. There was other family there. You can understand why Jesus would come back and through, that, through Bethel if there was family related like this. Um, but two weeks out of the year, Zechariah would leave home and go to the temple and serve. And of course, he'd have to go back for Passover and the others. But the other 11 months of the year, he's at home doing his priestly duties with the local community, meaning he was probably um, uh, teaching. He was probably handling you know, minor uh, disputes. He was probably holding small ceremonies, whatever a, a Jewish rabbi would be doing in the small town in a rural community for the people who may not be able to go to the temple every day. But he's chosen. This is a really big deal. I, I don't even have a good comparison for it in our modern sense that would um, apply the same august responsibility and uh, honor that this is. I don't even know if we have a modern comparison. I couldn't think of one. Something that you've waited all your life and the chances are you'll never get it. And he gets this, op this, uh, this honor. Now, <coughs> excuse me. The process for burning this incense, see if I can get this right. You have the chosen priest and two assistants. The one assistant would be carrying a bowl of coals taken from the brazen altar. Let me just read it. I'm better if I just read it rather than try to do this by memory. Um, Let's see, he is accompanied by two assistants. One of these men is carrying a golden bowl of burning coals from the brazen offer, altar of burnt offering and spreads them out on the altar of incense. So there's hot coals placed on the altar. The coals had to come from the brazen altar. 
If the coals or the fire came from any other place, it was considered a strange fire. And that was the deadly mistake of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. They gave strange fire in the tabernacle and God smote them. You know, in other words, think of every priest since that time. When they enter in here, they're going, if I do this wrong, it could be it. This is, this is no, oh yeah, I've been called, oh, shoot, I have to preach today? Okay, oh whatever, I'll, I'll do the work. And, you know, it's no big deal. You know, Tom, if you ever gave a bad sermon, were you ever in danger of losing your life because of it? Not usually. <laughs> I mean, just, just think of it in that perspective. But here, if they do it wrong, or they present it wrong, or somehow defile the ceremony, they're dishonoring God. And if you again look at the chart of the temple, how close are they to the Holy of Holies? Real close. Like maybe between here and the third row. And there's just this curtain between it. And where, what's supposed to be in the Holy of Holies? The presence of God. Yeah. It's, this is a big deal. So, um, the Lord was trying to teach his people and us by this that our prayers have value and are dependent on the atonement of blood, which was in the sacrifice in the outer area. After the assistant carried the coal to the altar, he withdraws. The other assistant is carrying a golden censer filled with incense. And he arranges the incense to the side of the altar. And then he departs. And it's just now the priest with the hot coals and the powder, the incense. And there's a solemn silence. Now remember the cacophony outside going on. You also have, if you look in uh, verse 10 of the, our text, outside the whole multitude of the people are praying at this hour. So you have them offering their prayers. All of this is happening at once. The sacred moment has arrived for Zechariah now to place the incense upon the coals which causes a cloud to arise in the temple. So not steam, but a cloud of burnt incense, a smoke. We've all seen it. Most of us, if you ever use incense, you, you, know, you light the little stick. Now imagine if you had a whole cup full of that, sto that stuff and then throw it on a burning coals. <clears throat> Instantaneous fragrance. The fragrance includes stacti, uh, ancha, galbanum and frankincense. And that formula is found in Exodus chapter 30, verses 34 to 38. This is all very ritualistic and very prescribed. You don't go in and go, yeah, I got something at Bath and Body Works. <laughs> Throw it on there, isn't that cool? Oh, love that lavender smell. No, that would be sacrilege. This is all very important. The smoke arises and Zechariah offers a fervent prayer for the peace and redemption of Israel 
and for the gratefulness of God's blessings. So there he is. Zechariah has never been in this room before. Ever. Imagine that. He's not walking into a normal place. He's never seen this setup, not with his own eyes. He has an idea what it is. He's read the scriptures. He has a picture of it in his head, but he's never actually been in here before. And so in this very august, solemn moment, he places the incense on the altar. The incense goes up. He steps back and he's praying and he lifts his head and there's a guy standing there. Now, I get I was trying trying to picture this, just the emotion of the moment. There have probably happened in your life sometime where you're in a room or a house or somewhere and you think you're alone. And then you're doing whatever, you're fully concentrated, and next thing you know, someone is right there. And they've snuck up on you and you go, <gasps> Don't do that. This is your reaction, or you grab your chest. You know, Zechariah does that. That has meaning because um, he's an old guy. Uh, it is so interesting how the book of Luke is so understated. It isn't this, and with great triumph and glorious explosion of light and fireworks and neon. It just says. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Like it happened every day. No. This is really amazing. Well, it says Zechariah was troubled. <laughs> Nothing like an understated statement. Literally, that means shaken or trembling. The same word is used for Mary when the angel appears to Mary. She is troubled. The same word is used of the shepherds. When the angels appear, they were sore afraid. They were troubled. When he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Well, of course it did. I mean, you know, in today's day and age, we've got people that claim they just have conversations with angels at their breakfast table. You know, I talk with angels. We have that old TV show that were touched by an angel. Mm -hmm. There are angels among us and they look just like us and they're nice people. And they can do miraculous things for you. And Yes, angels are among us. We just don't see them necessarily. They may be there in the form of a person or human being. Because you know, there are biblical examples of when you take care of the stranger, you could be taking care of an angel but not quite like this. Especially where it happened. This wasn't out in the street. This is in the inner sanctum, a place where no one else is supposed to be, and suddenly there's this appearance. We don't know if he was glowing. We don't know if he had wings. We don't know if cherubim were going, oh, we have none of that. Most likely it was fairly, um, innocuous from an angelic perspective, but for Zechariah, well, and then the angel spoke. This is really important, my friends. 
the last time God spoke was 400 years ago through the prophet Malachi. Putting it in our calendar, the last time God spoke was 1619. Eight years after the King James Version was brought out. King James I was still on the throne of England. Jamestown had just finally survived and began establishing a government in Virginia. That's how long it's been since God has spoken to his people in any form or fashion according to scripture. We studied the, the, uh, the Apocrypha. We spent nine months going through the Apocrypha, those of you who remember that. And we talked about all these things, but none of them had a prophet involved. None of them were expressions of God speaking to the people. God wasn't necessarily silent. The people just weren't listening. But there was no assigned prophet. There was no angelic visitations. The last words of Malachi... Malachi 4, 4 through 6 reads, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. What a great way to end the Old Testament. Now, for those of us who have been in this class for a long time, Chronologically, what is the last book of the Old Testament? Not the last prophet, but what is the last book of the Old Testament chronologically? This is another trivia question. Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Chronologically, you have the building of Solomon's temple. You have the Babylonians, first the Assyrians, wiping out the northern kingdom. Then you have the Babylonians coming in and wiping out the southern kingdom, destroying the temple, taking everybody away to Babylon. Then they're brought back. Ezra rebuilds the temple. Nehemiah rebuilds the wall. God has reestablished his people. End of the Old Testament. But what are the last words of the book of Nehemiah? Nehemiah 13.30 reads... Remember me, O oh God. Zechariah, his name means God has remembered. Wow. When you think about it, the last time we have any of this going on where God is actively speaking to the people, the prayer of Nehemiah was to remember me, O oh God. And here we are. God remembered. And he says, the first thing he says is, don't be afraid. <laughs> you know what? We live in fear, don't we? For those of us who have any sort of investment in the stock market, we live in daily fear. That tomorrow it's all going to collapse like it did 11 years ago. You're in daily fear that you might lose your job. You're in daily fear that the illness that you have may come back. You're in daily fear of all these various things and God over and over and over again in Scripture says, do not be afraid. 
I've got this. And then he says, your prayer has been heard. What prayer? What was Zechariah praying that had been heard? There's two answers. You, you, can you guys come up with the two answers? Possible answers? For what would child. be for, hmm? a for a child? Okay, that's one possibility. He could just be praying for someone to care for him in his old age. Possibly. But what's his job as a priest? For God. Well, he may have been to praying, praying for to praying for the people. The redemption of Israel, the salvation of the people, bringing blessing on the people. Now, I've, I read many sermons that it says that Zechariah was in there praying for a child. I don't think so. Zechariah was a holy and devout man. He knew when he went in there, his job was to apply the incense appropriately. And then lift the prayers of the people to God. That was the whole point of the prayer of incense. The prayer of incense, let me see, Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2. The prayer of incense, Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call you, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. The symbol, as found in Exodus 30, all through the chapter, that this prayer of incense was a representation of the, the prayers of the people going up to God. And they would smell wonderful. They would not necessarily... You have the blood of sacrifice and the horrific smells of all the animals outside getting slaughtered. This smell is a beautiful smell and helps cover but presents these prayers to him. If he's in there praying for himself, he's not doing his job. Now, ironically, both prayers were answered in this reply from the angel. It says, your prayers have been heard. Well, if he was praying for the salvation of Israel, oh, wait. The prayer was answered in this child for John the Baptist to be the forerunner of Jesus. So that prayer has actually been answered here too. Zechariah probably just wasn't quite aware of it at this moment. Now, in your Bible, it has a comma after the word heard. So it sounds like you know, the angel is saying, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. So it makes it sound like this was all one unit the commas are not in the text. So we don't know if it's a full stop and then a new sentence or if it's all meant to be a one. Bottom line is, and I won't get you know, too wrapped up in that distinction, is that the angel is declaring to Zechariah that a miracle is going to occur and that his wife is going to have a child and you're going to call his name John and John means God is gracious. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. 
in the um, Annunciation to Mary from the angel, it says that he, Jesus, will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. But here, he's saying that John will be great before the Lord. And in John chapter 7, verse 28, Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. John the Baptist turned out to be an extraordinary young man. Life was cut off very short, but he was an amazing person. It says here you shouldn't drink wine or strong drink. That may be a reference to a, uh, a Nazarite vow, but probably not in that you don't make babies take the Nazarite vow. That would be weird. But it is the idea that he's going to be set apart differently from everyone else in some way. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, there's another prophecy. It's in Joel. Get to that. Hosea Joel. Joel chapter 2, verse 27, or 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. This idea of God pouring his spirit into John, even from his mother's womb. And then verses 16 and 17, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah. Remember what I read from Malachi chapter 4? I will send you Elijah the prophet. This is the fulfillment of that promise in Malachi, the last words of the Old Testament. I will send in him the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the people prepared. And Zechariah said, cool. <laughs> this is so good. I mean, I'm really happy. No. He says, how am I supposed to know this? Now, you might say, well, you know, that's a natural question. Uh, my guess is probably most of us in the room would probably say the same thing. Our natural skepticism is going to cut in. You know, he says, I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years, too. I mean, this just ain't possible. If you compare Zechariah's response to the angel and Mary's response to the angel... Zechariah said, how shall I know this? Mary said, how will this be? She's asking a further clarification. She's not doubting that it's going to happen. Zechariah goes, no way. It's just, this is not going to happen. Well, the angel answered, I'm Gabriel. That would have terrified Zechariah. He knows who, Ze who Gabriel is. Gabriel was the angel in Daniel in chapter 9 who helped Daniel with the vision of, and then gave the vision of the 70 weeks in Dan chapter 9 of Daniel. 
There are only two angels named in the entire Bible, Gabriel and Michael. And whenever Michael shows up, that's in Daniel and in Revelation, it's related to judgment. Gabriel shows up a lot in these first passages. He shows up to Mary right after this. He is the bringer of news or interpretation of dreams and signs. Zechariah would know his scripture. The pattern in scripture, starting with Psalm 116.10, which is quoted by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.13, the pattern is supposed to be, I believe, therefore I have spoken. That's the correct pattern. I believe, therefore I speak. Zechariah doesn't believe. And therefore, he doesn't speak. This is a reference to Psalm 116.10. And that's the judgment. I stand before in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Doggone it. This is a really difficult passage for those of us today. Because all of us are struck by doubt. Always. It's a natural thing. I had one uh, friend of mine, she got really frustrated because she said, people are saying that God isn't good because of bad things are happening in my life. She goes, who are they to lay that judgment on God? God is good all the time. We just don't understand the goodness because we're so wrapped up in ourselves. We cannot see that God is good no matter what. We cannot change that. It is an unchangeable fact. Our circumstances are difficult. But how often in our lives do we look back on difficulties and we see, wow, God was so good in that really tough time. But when you're in the midst of it, you can't see it at all. It just hurts too much emotionally, physically, economically, spiritually. Well, the story continues. The people were outside waiting for Zechariah. This, once the assistants have left, it was probably no more than 10, maybe 15 minutes at most for that ceremony to happen and for the prayers to be done. And what happened is then the priest would come out into the, the, the gathering and he would place a blessing on all the people because their prayers have been lifted. And he would then bless them all and they would go about their day. Well, he eventually comes out. And oh, by the way, little interesting trivia bit, you may have heard this. On the Day of Atonement, when the high priest went to the Holy of Holies, he didn't have assistance with him. He just went in all by himself. They put bells on the bottom of his robe and tied a rope around his ankle. Because if he died in there, no one was going to go in and get him. They would pull him out if he stopped making sounds. Because then obviously God had smote him in the Holy of Holies. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so now you have, where is he? You, know, you can hear the murmur in the congregation. You know, 
The service was supposed to start at 10.45. Um, where's the pastor? You know, my gosh. And of course, he comes blustering in 10 minutes later. Oh, the traffic was terrible. You know, whatever. But you start wondering, the murmuring. Where is he? What's going on? Well, he comes out, and it says he was unable to speak to them. So just draw the movie of your mind. You know, I mean, he can't talk. It's also theorized that he was also deaf. Because over in verse 62, it says, when they were all together, they were making signs to him. Well, they wouldn't have to make signs to him if he could hear them. And the Greek word for unable to speak actually allows for deaf and mute but it doesn't necessarily have to mean that. So it's very possible he was struck, both unable to speak, but also <coughs> unable to hear. Yeah. Earlier you made the uh, comment about holding his chest. Perhaps he was holding his head. It sounds like a stroke. Yeah, it's possible. You never know. We don't know what happened, but it was a divine judgment on him. And he was old. And he's old. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple because he's trying to describe it. Maybe they handed him a slate or something and he wrote it. Now it's interesting, in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 26, in Daniel chapter 10, verses 7, 8, and 15, both Ezekiel and Daniel were struck mute after a vision. Mm -hmm. Not because of judgment, but because of what they had seen was so amazing and so glorious. So here... Maybe they're comparing it to that, but no. Zechariah knows. It was his doubt that caused this to happen. And when his service of time was ended, he went home. Elizabeth becomes pregnant. Nine months later, it's time for her to give birth. And she bore a son. And the whole community is celebrating. We have neighbors and relatives in verse 58 showing up. And the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they had rejoiced with her. You can imagine, she was known as the wife of the great priest of our town. And they're excited about this. This is amazing. And the fact that the child has come to full term is another miracle. Because often in the older uh, pregnancies, there's pregnancy loss very frequently. This is a miracle. But notice that there is no real discussion about the birthday. The discussion is about the name day. Zechariah was, was still unable to speak on the birthday. We're now eight days later. And it's time for the circumcision. So, yeah, most likely Zechariah is going to perform it because the priest would perform the circumcision. And the people wanted to call him Zechariah after his father, call him, you know, Zech Jr. And his mother answered, no, he's supposed to be called. Why did we have to wait so long? <laughs> oh, no, that isn't what it says. I mean, they could have. There's probably some Hebrew phrase that would have been a great name. Oh, we waited forever for you. Uh, but no, 
we're supposed to be called John. Well, why? Because Zechariah had imparted what he was told nine months ago in the inner sanctum. He's supposed to be called John. And they say, but you don't have any family with this name. There's no connection. And so they make signs to the father saying, well, what do you want him called? He asked for a writing tablet. It wasn't an exosketch. It was not a chalkboard. Most likely it's some sort of wax tablet. So you could make the notations and then rub it and rub the wax flat again. That's how it would work. And he goes, his name is John. And immediately, this is a favorite word of, of Luke, used multiple times throughout his gospel. Immediately, his mouth was opened. Charles Spurgeon writes, I marvel at his faith that he should persevere in prayer for a boon which seemed at his own and his wife's age to have been out of the course of nature and beyond the domain of hope. But I marvel a great deal more that when the answer came to that prayer, Zacharias couldn't believe it. And so often it is with us. Nothing would surprise some of us more than to receive an answer to one of our prayers. And though we believe in the effort uh, the efficiency of prayer, at times we believe so feebly that when the answer comes, as comes it does, we're astounded and filled with amazement. We can scarcely think that it's a purpose of God, but rather a happy coincidence. I'll just stop there for a second. Think about that. Think about your prayers. When you lay prayers before God and then they're answered, hopefully, you're not saying, well, that was a coincidence. Some people do. Or they say, boy, I did that right, didn't I? There's only one source for that kind of thing, and that's God. So his, tongue was his, his mouth was open, his tongue was loose, and the first things he did was to praise God. He'd been quiet for nine months. And he didn't say the first thing, boy, am I glad that's over. First thing he did was bless God. When you come out of the dark side of life, the first thing we need to be doing is blessing God and thanking God for his mercy. Because the alternative is also possible. And fear came upon all the neighbors. They figured he was deaf and dumb for the rest of his life. No. Another miracle in their eyes had occurred. And they talked about it everywhere. And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, we don't have time to go through the Benedictus. But I want to just bring up a couple things. In fact, this is just a great um, meditation for you at Christmas time, is to read this Benedictus. Because... Mary's song is a song of thanksgiving. Zechariah's song is a hymn of praise on behalf of the nation. It's not all about me. He's praising God for what he will do for everyone, but also for each one of us. And you might ask, why is it called the Benedictus? is because the first words in Latin are Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. That's where the name comes from. 
It also happens to be the same opening phrase that King David used in the installation of Solomon in 1 Kings 1.48. Blessed be the God of Israel, Lord God of Israel. It's the same words in that dedication ceremony. I'll end with a quote from Tim Keller. Christmas is the end of thinking you are better than someone else. Because Christmas is telling you that you could never get to heaven on your own. God had to come to you. It's telling you that people who are saved are not those who have arisen through their own ability to be what God wants them to be. Instead, salvation comes to those who admit how weak they are. That's what Christmas is all about. God came to us. God with us. Emmanuel. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Thank you for our time. For this amazing story that we hear frequently at this time of year. It's very familiar. And yet there's little details. It's a, it's a forgotten miracle. And Lord, only in your economy, in the way you do things, you use a, a humble, unknown, un, you know, an unremarkable old man and old woman and start the whole story right here to fulfill your promises for your people. And the result is we stand here blessed with the full salvation of your Son in our hearts. And we praise you and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.